Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. David, have you been watching Game of Thrones? Of course I have. I've got absorbed by that long ago, but... Well, not me, because I'm not into fantasy books. Hmm. And what about romances? Well, you know, occasionally. (laughs) So, what about reading romance Reading romance. Well, for this show I do, but not generally. Well, there are some readers that either love them or Or hate hate them. So, welcome to Elizabeth Coleman. Thank you. Whose book, Losing (laughs) the Plot... Has romance writing at its core, but in a very, very funny way. So I'm asking you, Elizabeth, why is it that some people belittle romance writing? I think I have to say, Jan, I think it's largely to do with the fact that it's a pretty female oriented genre and um, there's some unconscious bias there. I don't think it's necessarily deliberate, but because it appeals more to women than men, I think it, in the past certainly it's been dismissed as sort of silly women stuff. Um, um, you know, um, I wonder whether it's because romance writing, it has to be emotionally satisfying yeah. with an optimistic ending. Yes, that's right. Well, I've actually, the happy ending thing, you know... Um, it's very unfashionable to have a happy ending. It's very unfashionable um, to be hopeful and optimistic. I think bleak, bleakness and grim stuff seems to be kind of cooler just by virtue of its gloom. Mm. But it's you know, and it's not a point of view I actually agree with. And I, pe- yeah. people say that you know it's written to a formula. Oh, but that's how can it be? rubbish. <laughs> yes, Don't I'm get me with started. You. <laughs> Well, then why do you think there's a number of authors of romance writing that use pseudonyms? Is it because they're embarrassed? I don't know, to be honest. No, no. Look, even Agatha Christie and... Yeah, Mary Westmacott, she she used when she was writing. I don't know about that. I'm not sure. Maybe it's because it's a secondary genre for them and they use their main genre as another kind. Well, Well, now we've done the Mm. the initial chat. We've Mm. introduced the broad theme. And why this chat is taking place is because Elizabeth Coleman's book, Losing the Plot, we have a character called... Charlotte Lancaster, who appears to be living the life of everybody's dream. Oh, well, maybe. Mm-hmm. Who is she? Charlotte Lancaster is a very famous romance novelist um, who was originally American and moved to Melbourne with her family when she was 16. And she's written eight very successful mm. romance novelers, novels and she's married to an extremely handsome and erudite um, uh, intellectual property barrister. Intellectual property QC, mm. yes. Mm. They're very right. much the celebrity couple in mm. complete contrast to Vanessa Rooney. <laughs> Who's yes, she? Vanessa Rooney's my heroine. I love <laughs> Vanessa. Vanessa is a dental assistant <laughs> whose husband Craig has recently dumped her and she has two sons around puberty age and mm. she's very underconfident and um but she's full of all this untapped potential and she's a, been an avid consumer of romance novels for a long time and is a huge fan of Charlotte Lancaster's and decides to finally pluck up the courage to attempt writing her own romance novel which she does 
For 23 years, Vanessa's been a dental assistant sterilising orthodontic pliers and ingesting humanity's fetid breath. (laughs) (laughs) But each morning for 368 days, Mm -hmm. she's got up at Mm. 4.30am to do exactly that. Mm. Is that how you did your writing, Elizabeth? (laughs) Almost. I get up at 5am. But she that was actually based on a, a friend and I went to a romance writers conference several years ago and I met a lot of women. You know, they had young kids and they would get up at 4.30 and write on the ironing board for two hours, mm. you know, before everyone got up and the household chaos started. I'm, luckily in, I'm lucky enough to have an office in the backyard, but I, I, I do get up that early, I must confess. Well, Vanessa sent her manuscript off to the publisher of Charlotte Lancaster's books. Mm-hmm. What happened? Well, she gets a rejection letter and she's devastated, but um, then tries to pick herself up off the floor shortly afterwards for the sake of her boys so that she can lead by example and not give up at the first hurdle. But then the publishing house insists that they never received her manuscript. They don't know who she is, what she's talking about. They insist she must have made mum's mistake. And combined with the fact that her mother has lost her... Vanessa's mother has lost her hard drive and now one of the boys has lost... The computer. The computer (laughs) on the tram, which never turns up. She has absolutely no record of her book, Lost and Found Heart, which can I just quickly say the scenario because... (laughs) <laughs> makes me laugh so much. Her book, Lost and Found Heart, is about a feisty New York cardiac nurse who's assisting in a heart transplant operation when she discovers to her horror that the heart belongs to her fiancé who's just been <laughs> killed in a car crash. And so she faints in the operating theatre, incurring the wrath of the brilliant but arrogant transplant surgeon, Dr Rufus Roundtree. Um, and I think you can guess what happens from there eventually. Oh, mm. look, it, it's such a... It's such a <laughs> but, but, what happens with Charlotte Lancaster's next book? Mm. Well, her, um, Vanessa's best friend tries to cheer her up buying t- by buying tickets to the launch of Charlotte Lancaster's new novel, Love Transplant, mm. and they get there to the reading only to discover to Vanessa's absolute horror that Charlotte has plagiarised her book and it's Vanessa's book just with, you know, the odd words and phrases changed. Mm. Mm. And when Vanessa comes back to the publisher, mm. all the paper, tra- all the email trail mm. never existed. Yeah, oh. they've disposed of everything. And so she's, yeah. it's Dave Rendell, yeah. the kid's <laughs> soccer coach, she goes to. <laughs> just snorted into your microphone. Um, <laughs> yes, well, she doesn't know many lawyers and she's reluctant to do it because she doesn't want to have a fight with a big shot celebrity and she's also very underconfident thinking, oh, it must be a mistake. It couldn't possibly have really happened. But a friend, best friend and a mother are shaking her and saying, you've got to get legal advice. So the only lawyer she knows, although she hasn't met him yet, is Dave Rendell, who's a suburban solicitor from Preston, who, who's the coach of her kids, her son's under 13 soccer team. So he knows that he needs a barrister to take this to mm. court who mm. will play a no-win, uh, no-fee clause. Mm-hmm. So who does he get and why? Well, uh, by sheer... Well, it's not a coincidence, actually, but um, it turns out that Charlotte Lancaster has recently dumped her <gasps> handsome intellectual property barrister husband, Marcus Stafford, and he has some uh, huge mm. bone to pick with her, a lot of mm. vengeance issues, mm. Not that he, although he's too smart to 
admit that. Mm-hmm. So he agrees to take on the case against his ex-wife um, for no win, no fee, because Vanessa can't afford to pay a barrister. Vanessa mm. had modelled her main character on the stories about a dead father, and it was Marcus, the QC, who looked the image of mm-hmm. the character she had invented. And she was in love, or was it lust? And this is another quote from Elizabeth Coleman's book. His smile exuded so much charisma that you could slice it and put it in sandwich bags. <laughs> But, of course, all of this was in contrast to Dave, who wanted to do social justice law but still a suburban lawyer doing conveyancing and helping old ladies, some of which are in the Romance Readers Group. Now, he's a warm guy, so why did his wife leave him? If Anthony Dave's life left him almost because he's such a warm guy, because he had these big dreams when they met. She's a much more alpha personality than mm. him and they had this big dream of dreams when she met she says you know at one point she says to him what happened to you when we met you were going to save the world but someone looks at you with sad little eyes and you save their guinea pig instead <laughs> so she I think was hoping for him to pursue his dreams and kind of tried to encourage it and eventually got a bit fed up and headed off and he just wasn't the, he didn't have the killer instinct that I think ultimately she needed he just didn't have enough romance mm. oh well, well that's then, true then Vanessa she said um, Vanessa had a best friend Kiri who was from New Zealand and, and she just thinks that all romance is only fit for dunny paper yes exactly <laughs> and when I first read about her calling someone a dickhead dickhead yeah I thought that's it was what a she typo call- no that's what she calls <laughs> Vanessa's ex-husband he's a dickhead yeah <laughs> look there were so many laugh out and a loud moments here and oh, um, all these people have kids in the same soccer team and Lockie may have a crush on Dave's daughter mm-hmm. Nikki mm-hmm. so we're back to the romance industry media get hold of the plagiarism story mm-hmm. they want a strung a struggling single mum mm-hmm. and their sons to look young and her sons to look young and vulnerable but how does this play out for poor old ex-husband <laughs> Craig and Lockie <laughs> well poor old um Poor old, it's actually Jackson's the oh, oldest. Jackson, he's 13, he's in year seven. Yeah. Uh, but the younger brother is much more feisty and they're with this dreadful current, oh, a current geez. affair reporter in the park who's insisting that Vanessa push the younger kid in the swing. The younger kid is refusing. And so poor Jackson, who's a much more oh, sensitive no. kid, Sitting offers to go on the swing and Vanessa doesn't know what to do, but a current affair are hassling oh. him. So here she is pushing her 13-year-old son well, on the he swing. He just gets so bullied oh, yeah, at and school. Yeah, he gets bullied at school and it's and just he's, awful. And he's the one who really wants to show his um, his... his his liking of Dave's mm. girlfriend, mm. and how mm. does he do it? Well, um, for various reasons, Vanessa and Marcus, the intellectual mm. property barrister, become a couple for a little while, and he's very masterful and all you know, like romantic heroes in, in oh, books. Yeah. And um, Jackson, unknown, known to her, has kind of been observing the behaviour. And the relationship because so she's having sleepovers. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Although, yeah, so she she um, is horrified, Vanessa, when one day she gets called to the school to the principal's office and discovers that Jackson has pushed Dave's daughter Nikki up against a wall and tried to pash her. You know, mm. and she's really distressed. And so we, we've got Dave, the, Nikki's father, and uh, coming to Vanessa, and 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 let's let's hear a little bit from. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Losing the plot. This is um, a confrontation between Dave and Vanessa after Jackson has um, unwittingly but still attacked 
Nikki. Um, Vanessa says to Dave, you're right, I've let him have too much unsupervised screen time, but from now on, screen time? Dave scoffed harshly. She looks startled. Screen time's not the issue here. The kid lives in a house full of romance books where arrogant pricks do whatever they want with women. Her face went pale and he rammed the point home. His mother even wrote one. Vanessa looked like she was clutching for words, but I never, I, I didn't, you really think this is my fault? Not entirely, let's not let Stafford off the hook. Marcus? She seemed genuinely confused, and Dave marvelled at how such a smart woman could be so stupid. What's Marcus got to do with... Oh, give me a break. How many times has Jackson seen Mr Master of the Universe manhandle you? She reeled back as though he'd punched her. He doesn't manhandle... Well, she trailed off limply. I mean, maybe sometimes, but that's not got, got nothing to do with... Wake up! Dave shouted. Kids are like sponges. Yes. So it's it's really this interesting concept, isn't it? You know, with mm. the Me Too writing, mm. the romance writing mm. and everything coming into that. Mm. Well, the, the transplant story was called Lost and Found Heart and was the title <laughs> of the plagiarised romance novel. But it's also a very clever pun, isn't it? Um, mm. We lost the plot to plagiarism, but yep. other characters lose their their past. Mm, Marcus mm. with his mother Shirley, and yeah, yeah, a joy with Jack, the mm, dead husband, and mm. even Dave with his own desires. Mm, mm. Mm. Thankfully, we didn't actually have to have Isabel's nipples hardened like pink <laughs> cherries at his brutish touch. <laughs> <laughs> any of Vanessa's writing. No, absolutely not. <laughs> I just thought it was great. Oh, I, I just you. laughed my way through it. So I've been speaking with Elizabeth Coleman, Losing the Plot, published by Alan and Unwin. Thanks, Thanks, Elizabeth. Thank you. Well, thank you for that. My uh, guest, Sally Hepworth, this is a pre-record, um, is playing on sort of certain social tropes as well. This is her novel entitled uh, The Mother-in-Law. What is it about mothers-in-law? Society seems to portray them as the nemesis of every young wife. Well, Sally Hepworth looks at the lies and realities of one particular mother-in-law in her novel, appropriately entitled The Mother-in-Law. So, Sally, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me. Now, Diana seems to be a particularly acerbic mother-in-law <laughs> and Lucy, the daughter-in-law, uh, struggles to cope with her attitude. What are the things that Diana is doing that annoys uh, Lucy? Well, I don't know that it is particularly anything that she is doing as much as is it just the way that she is. And she's a very different kind of person. But she turns off the baby monitor when mm. Archie is born because mm. she doesn't want to be uh, yeah. bothered and interrupted. Yeah. Well, they're very different people, aren't they? She's comes from the old school kind of parenting where, you know, the children are okay. You don't need to fuss over them. And Lucy is, you know, a very new age mother that's very hands on. It goes a bit further than that because the family family actually orchestrate uh, a little performance, shall we say. Ollie, her son, and, and Lucy need money for their first home and mm -hmm. such like. But Diana doesn't like 
lending money to her children, even though she and her husband are well off. And we have this scene, I am sick with mortification. What were we thinking? Asking Diana for money. Suddenly it seems so obvious. With what Ollie has told me about his upbringing, how Diana insisted he and Nettie be raised with part-time jobs and second-hand cars and an understanding that not everyone is as privileged as them, of course Diana wasn't going to be in favour of giving them a handout. Mm. I mean, they've got the money. Why won't Diana be generous or helpful? Yeah, well, again, it comes back to her philosophy on parenting and what she thinks is actually helpful to the children. And on some level, money is helpful, but she's really going deeper and what makes them useful human beings and not just handing things to them so they don't have any kind of personal growth. But the family has a way of orchestrating their way around Mm -hmm. Diana, don't they? They do. Which sort of speaks volumes about Diana's role and how families cope. So Diana seems to be slightly marginalised there. Mm. And isn't that what families are like? You know, they they all have their funny little nuances and their pet peeves and their ways of working each other and, and so that's how the Goodwin family managed to get around things. But now the novel begins with Diana's death, mm-hmm. which provides us with an opportunity not only to delve into Diana's past, but on the, those issues within the family are those that uh, might want Diana's money. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at the motives here and several people are suspect. So, for example, there's Ollie, her son, who is in financial trouble. And that sort of raises that whole issue of entitlement. Yes. A, a major issue in society today in many ways. Yes. So basically, there there have been cases of uh, families actually murdering Mm -hmm. parents. There have indeed. Was that a, a, a motivation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were a number of suspects in this book and being a woman of incredible means, as you say, there were a number of people who maybe wanted her dead, um, not just for her money, but also there are other motivations of why. Well, we'll go into some of those. I'm just sort of wanting to flesh out some of these motivations because in society, yeah, children today have been known to bump off their parents for the inheritance, but also they feel entitled to it. Mm, Exactly. And that's why I think Diana didn't want to give them money, is that she didn't want to raise entitled children, especially with all this money that she had. And But then that turns out that they need this money. And so this is a real motivation for them to... It wasn't just the house buying their first house, but Ollie's gone into a business venture that Mm -hmm. fails. And so they're now struggling. We also have Nettie, the daughter And Nettie is going through the IVF program and Diana actually has reasons for opposing this and doesn't want to lend money because it's a very expensive Mm -hmm. undertaking. And so there's a sort of very personal uh, frustration that emerges. So here's somebody else with a motivation. That's right, yeah. But again, we're looking at medical procedures and such like in society that people feel entitled to, but yes. back in the day, back in Diana's day, no such things were available yeah. necessarily. And I think that one is even more emotional because there is this question of who is entitled to be able to have a baby and should someone with more money be entitled to have a baby as opposed to someone with less money? Is it a human right or is it something that money can buy? Um, so, yeah, there's another very real reason that 
um, that Nettie wants money. And then there is Diana herself. There is the suggestion she's been diagnosed with cancer. And so you've actually raised the social issue of suicide or euthanasia, which again is another a very pertinent theme running through our societies today in many ways. So Diana could have taken her own life. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) So we have all of these threads going through in terms of social issues and the potential, well, murderer, can we say, uh, possibly? Has she been murdered? Has she taken her own life? I mean, obviously, readers are going to have to find that out for themselves. But now... What you've done with the telling of this novel is you've gone back in time. You've shown us Diana's background and all of a sudden the edges around Diana start to mellow and she doesn't appear then as acerbic as uh, first suggested. So what are some of the elements of Diana's past? Yeah, well, that's what it really goes back into what makes us as a person and why do we do the things that we do and that's why the background was so important with this particular book and Diana was not born with all of this money that um, that she has now. How much of that background can you give away for us well, without giving away too much of the novel? What I can say is that there was an incident early in her life which shaped the way that she raises her children and her feelings about money and the way that she want the value she wants her children to hold and that's what stops her from giving them everything that they want. Yeah. Is there a dissonance then, I mean, even today, between generations, the way our parents operated and what we have today? Because society has changed so radically and, yeah. and the way children and parents look at the same situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is part of the the difficulty between this particular relationship, the mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law, is that they are, in, in essence, the heart centre of any family, these two women. And yet they have not only their values and upbringings, they've grown up in completely different families. They didn't choose each other. They're not related by blood. And yet they're thrust into this family together with this big generational difference. And each generation has different expectations about what should be provided. Yes. And so do you have to struggle to pay for the first house or Mm -hmm. should you accept or expect money from your parents to pay for that? Especially if they have the money. Yes. But also then Diana is a very supportive and helpful individual although her family doesn't think so. There's another side to Diana. What's going on there? Yes, so Diana has a charity um, which helps new immigrants who are pregnant um, and she will do things like collect prams for them, collect old clothes um, and just support these women sometimes with money, helping them put in touch with hospitals and things to have their babies and so it's really interesting for her family to see the way she is nurturing and supporting these people that are outside of her family. But it it seems such a contrast in the the character, even a contradiction, nurturing Mm. and supporting on the one level Mm. and yet seemingly unhelpful, unfeeling with her own family Mm. and the grandchildren and such. Mm. So, yes, individuals sort of walking around having two sides to them that we don't necessarily see. Yeah. We tend to uh, force our own impression on people without knowing the full story. Yes, exactly. So what your novel has done is actually flesh out 
a character more fully uh, in that regard. And it Good. builds slowly yeah. and, and the revelation going there. But here's Thank the go. You. You've actually got several narrative voices yes. going on here. How challenging was that to step from Lucy to Diana? Diana. It was always the intention for this book because this book was really an exploration of this relationship of mother-in-law and daughter-in-law and why it's so turbulent and I needed to take a 360-degree look at it so it had to be done through Lucy and Diana's eyes and I had to I had a real feeling that this relationship was driven by misunderstanding what that's why it was so difficult and if each other were able to step into the other one's shoes, that they would be able to see a very different side of each other. But also then, you've got it set in different times as well. So Mm -hmm. you're actually, as a writer, juggling different times, different narrative voices, which is fascinating. How challenging was that? That requires what I call my crazy person wall. So I have a big wall at home, which is just white. There's no artwork on it or anything. And I stick up post-its all over the wall. And it says, Diana, 10 years ago, Lucy, today. And, And I have to kind of chart out where I am at what time. Otherwise, I couldn't possibly keep track of it. So. Mentally take control of it That's all. That's right. So therefore, what ultimately is the message that you're sort of providing about society, about mothers-in-law in general, mm. and the social attitudes today? Well, I'm always a bit loath to, to say this is what I was intending, because I'm always surprised and delighted by what people take from my books that sometimes I didn't expect. But I think the thing that that is definitely, I hope people find in this book, is that you can always learn from stepping into someone else's shoes and that you never have the full picture. Um, And there's always something going on that you don't see. So having empathy is is always going to help you in relationships. Well, that empathy is particularly important because what you're dealing with is a relationship that is often vexatious, challenging, not every mother-in-law relationship but but it seems seems to be a a particular relationship that we cast aspersions about why is that I think a number of reasons. I think that, that for one, they didn't choose each other, like we mentioned before, and they're not related by blood, which makes them different from any other member of the family. And, of course, there's mother-in-laws and son-in-laws who are also not related and, and um, didn't choose each other. But there's something about these women, and as I said, being the heart centre of the family, they're thrust into this. They're not sharing a cab. They're sharing a life. You know, they're sharing um, a family tree. They're going to have Christmases together. They're going to be very influential on each other's lives. And so this expectation society has that they're going to get along instantly. And if they don't get along instantly, that one of them has to be evil is just not realistic. And it comes down to some very personal issues like how you raise the child, yes. especially given that there are, they are generations apart yes. with different philosophies that have come through. Exactly. And different philosophies don't make you evil. Just the more understanding you can have, then the more likely you are to perhaps be closer together and, and closer along than you think. So the book is uh, The Mother-in-Law, so that's a a very uh, obvious title. (laughs) The author is Sally Hepworth, and it is a Pan Macmillan release. So, Sally, thank you for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, there you go, Jan. Mothers-in-law, romance, it's all on for young and old. And I was speaking with Elizabeth Coleman about her book, Losing the Plot.